and welcome along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we're talking about the six money lies that you tell yourself. And we are so stoked today because we are joined by a special friend of the show, Carl from Research First. Carl, thanks so much for coming along to the show. And Carl is a very special person. He has written nine books on how to do research here in New Zealand. He is a social scientist and a behavioural researcher. <laughs> Carl's going to join us for the next three episodes. And the reason he's joining us is to talk about how we deal with money as social animals, if I could use that term. So we're going to be talking about the money lies we tell ourselves. We're going to be talking about how to be better with money and also how asset bubbles and property bubbles form from that behavioural perspective so we can try and adapt our attitudes and change what we do to be better with money. And so today we are talking about the six money lies that we tell ourselves and how they apply to property. But before we get into it, Carl, talk me through, how did you come up with these big six money lies? How did you find out that these are the lies we tell ourselves? You know, being a psychologist, one of the things we get asked a lot is, how do I make more money with an insight into human brains? And the thing about being a psychologist is we don't know a whole lot about how to make money. We're not, there aren't many rich psychologists in the world, but we do know a whole lot about why people don't save, why people squander money and why people make really dumb decisions. So that's where those six money lies came from. Really, it's about thinking about what does money do to, what does your brain look like on money? <laughs> I would have thought that Andrew's therapist was very well off the amount of time he has to spend there. <laughs> Carl's actually in here for relationship counselling for us, Ed. This is just the guys that we used to get him on here. <laughs> well, okay, the thing about being a psychologist is psychologists know that people are capable of being rational, but it's not really their first choice. And so once you understand the conditions under which people are and aren't rational, you can start to understand their motivations, right? You guys have heard of this. This is behavioural finance, but... You don't even need to think about behavioural finance. I think Keynes, of all people, back in the 20s, called it the animal spirits of economics, right? <laughs> like the idea that there's something else going on other than people maximising utility and thinking about returns. So your brain gets confused about money really quickly, mostly because your brain gets confused about time. Think about it like this. This is what I tell people all the time. How far back do you think you have to go in recorded history before the only thing you would have cared about, Andrew, is how you get fed tonight? Is that 200 years? Uh, I, my, my best guess would be like 3,000 years. Right. Okay. Well, even with No, no, no way. I sorry, I don't remember your name being Andrew. How long do you think it was then? Oh, this is why we need counselling. 300 years. You never let me answer. 300 years, okay. Max. Well, whatever it is. Whatever it is, 300 or Well, what's the answer? <laughs> Who's right? Well, it doesn't matter what the answer is. The point, <laughs> the point that's being made is... <laughs> it just spat his drink out. It absolutely so matters, that, Carl. <laughs> is, is, well, it's different for different people, isn't it? Like some people are still worrying about how they're going to get fed, right? And I think in a Western context, it's probably a few hundred years. But the point right. I'm trying to make is there's no mechanism in evolution that can keep up with that, right? Like the world has changed so fast that no matter how smart we are and how much we learn, actually deep down in your brain, all of us are still bloody hunter-gatherers mm. in business suits. Mm. And so mm. particularly when people get stressed and when they get tired or when crowds of people start behaving in a particular way, it's really, really hard 
not to follow along, not to yes. jump in, right? Yes. I mean, it's almost an anthropological perspective, right? It's like thinking about what did your brain evolve to do? Your brain didn't evolve to invest in property and make smart investment decisions. Yeah. It evolved to keep you alive. Okay. Now, Carl, I hear that a lot, but how do you know that that's actually true? Like I was reading a book yesterday that was trying to convince us about all of that sort of stuff. Like, oh, we're still Neanderthals, like hunting. hunting Some of gathering. One of us but, is, yes. But, but, I mean, before we get into the muddy lies, how do you know that that's true? Well, there's two ways to think about it, right? You can make a technical argument about the mechanisms of evolution and how does evolution work through mutations and generations, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is you just have to look around. The reason obesity is such a huge problem is that none of our brains evolve to actually survive in an environment that has such easy access to sugar and calories, okay. right? And some people really, really struggle around that. That's why we've invented terms like obesogenic environments, it's not just about your motivation, your willpower. It's you're living in a world that's just full of sugar and high-density food. Your brain didn't evolve to be right. Your brain evolved to keep you alive. That leak gives rise to something that's called processing fluency, which is your brain likes things that it can process quickly more than it likes things which are difficult to process. Mm. So that's really important. We'll come back and talk about that in a minute. And lots of people struggle with this, right? Your brain doesn't actually even care about accuracy. Your brain cares about survival. <laughs> You've obviously seen some of Ed's spreadsheets. <laughs> Oh, that's a boom. That's not even funny, Andrew. <laughs> oh, it's pretty funny, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the good looks and the humour in the show. Yeah, but so that's, so that's an evolutionary perspective, right? That's an anthropological perspective. But then you put people in groups. And one of the things we know from social psychology is it's much easier to be wrong with everybody than to be right on your own. So there's this huge herding pressure. And people are terrified of missing out. Mm. So that's when you get this kind of herding behavior. It's just really, really easy to follow the herd. Mm. It's really, really hard to say the herd's gone mad. Okay, so that must be money lie number one then. So how does that, following the herd money lie, how does that apply to property? I mean, if you think about the fear of missing out, like, you know, we, what do we call that? We call that FOMO these days. Once mm, upon a time, yep. we call it Carpe Diem probably. Oh, yep. You know, the idea that if other people are doing it, it absolutely has to be right. Nobody has the time or kind of the cognitive bandwidth to work their way through every decision they have to make. So instead of that, what we do is we use heuristics to make decisions, rules of thumb, shortcuts, and we look to others. That's called social proofing. If enough people are doing it, and if it's getting covered by the media, and you get high-profile people who are particularly charismatic and attractive doing it, it's really easy to get other people to follow along. So then what's money line number two? The second thing we need to know is that people hate losing more than they like gains, right? So if you ever think about people's risk appetite, a really good way to think about that is through what psychologists call loss aversion. And the best guess is people weigh losses about twice as much as they weigh gains. Wow. So if you actually want to tell them that an investment's a great idea, you're going to have to demonstrate that their return is probably twice as good as the money they expect to lose. And that goes for time as much as it goes for money or any other thing. Give me an example of that. So the example in marketing is if find ways to minimise regret rather than maximise returns. Yes. So that everything you do when you emphasise what people will gain starts from an assumption that people love gains. But once you understand that people really, really fear losing things, you can actually focus on how to minimise regret. Right. And that's a really powerful technique. Interesting. Mm. And do you think as well, Carl, that people should weigh them evenly in terms of winning and losing? Well, again, you know, we're jumping between paradigms all the time, aren't we? Like from a kind of a rational, sensible adult perspective, you can make that argument. But your brain doesn't want to do those things. Here's the thing, right? You've actually got at least three brains in your head. 
You know, you've got the old-fashioned reptilian brain that exists at the top of your brainstem. We share that with everybody. Top of that, you've got an emotional midbrain, which we share with mammals. And then you've got the wrinkly bit that everybody thinks about when they think about their brain. That's the kind of the human part of the brain. But so much of your decision-making doesn't actually occur on that kind of wrinkly sort of surface part. It actually occurs at much lower levels, including things like fear of loss. So that's almost a reptilian or a mammalian brain, which is why people talk about feeling that fear in their gut. Yes. Because it's actually embodied rather than something they're just thinking. So it's tough, right? The other reason it's tough is, again, all of us are talking about how to save for our retirement, right? But two things. One, you may not make it to retirement. And two, if you do, the guy who is going to retire at 65 or 60, he's a stranger to you right now. So why do you want to give him your money? And let me ask you this, Carl, is that why people perhaps stick to the areas and the cities that they know, so a suburb they've invested in before or a city they currently live in because they feel like they already know it? Absolutely. And, and there's a bit of an illusion of knowledge in there as well, isn't there? Like, you know, it's about more about familiarity and comfort. I should say too, for any psychologists listening, of course, a lot of the stuff stratifies around personality preferences as well. There's some personality in here, but in general, people prefer losses to gains and they like to do what they know and is predictable. The, the problem with all of this is what psychologists say is no one really knows what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. You know, so much of our life, think about tomorrow, right? You've probably already got plans to go to the gym tomorrow after work on the assumption that, you know, you'll be there to go to the gym tomorrow. It's a perfectly sensible assumption. Mm -hmm. But on what basis do we make that assumption? Experience. Mm -hmm. So let's come down to money line number three. Yeah. <laughs> this is a great one. This is the overvaluing of the things you have, right? <laughs> so this is why sellers obviously want far more property than buyers want to pay for it. There's a subset of this that's hilarious. It's called the Ikea effect. And they've done experiments in America where when people make stuff, even crap stuff like a pot in a class, the price they'll want to sell it will be much more than any rational person will be willing to pay for it. So the analogy there is that because you put together everything that you buy from Ikea yourself, you hold it in more value Absolutely. than going yeah. and buy something off the shelf. Yeah. See, I've tried to put together something once before and I hold it in no value because it lasts <laughs> about five minutes. Yeah. But you can imagine how if you spend a lot of your time renovating a property, yes. you know, you would actually end up investing more in that than simply money. Which is actually really interesting. So one show that I am not ashamed to say that I thoroughly enjoy and definitely didn't watch all 10 new episodes over the weekend is a program called Selling <coughs> Sunset on Netflix. Ed, I know you like this as well. And there was an unrealistic seller on there. She'd set her price at $4.2 million when they said, hey, look, realistically, you're probably more like three nine five or something something like that. And she said, yes, I know, but you know, I've, I've done all this work. And he's like, yes, that's created this price in your mind that you think it's more valuable. And she said, we only need one buyer, which is like terrible in the, in the real estate game. You, you need more than one buyer because you want a bit of competition there. You can't find one in the entire population of the world. That's a needle in a haystack kind of thing. You joked earlier about this being an interpersonal counselling session. But one of the things that they do talk about in interpersonal counselling is imagine when you're talking to yourself, imagine you're giving advice to somebody like a friend that you really care about. What would you say to them? So rather than you being invested in that $4.2 yes, million yes. house. If you were talking to a friend, what would you say? You'd, to say, you'd say, take the money. Yeah, it's a bird in the hand. Yeah. Number four. What's money line number four, Carl? Well, that's the whole idea that we're really, really bad at counterfactual thinking. In the critical thinking training we do for everybody, managers, leaders, everybody, the key lesson that sits at the heart of that is always be really clear about how you'd prove your idea is wrong. 
Because what your brain's wired to do is go out and look for proof that you're right. It's called confirmation bias. Yes. In fact, it's the most common bias we have in our brains. And what you have to do is teach yourself to actually look for what's called disconfirming or falsifying cases. What would it take for me to know that this is a bad idea? What would it take to convince me I'm wrong? Human beings are terrible. Yes. They're looking for counterfactuals. That's how Ed ends up with the shirts he wears. And the <laughs> well, perhaps he needs a checklist before he gets dressed. What are you even... <laughs> Sorry, Ed. But I think this is a really important lesson for investors as well. I mean, what professionals do where lives count, like doctors and pilots, is they have checklists. So they externalise their thinking and their counterfactual thinking. Yes. Uh, they just pick up a checklist and work through it, right? If you're relying on your brain, your brain's going to let you down if you're emotionally involved, if you're tired, yes. if you're stressed, and if you're rushed. And if you can externalise that, what we talk a lot about in psychology is you don't actually address bad habits, you just yes. swamp them, you crowd them out with yes. a good habit. Yes. But actually even good habits won't be enough. Yes. You need to externalise this stuff somehow. Often people will not want to put together a checklist for property investment because they think it's too hard, there are too many factors, I'll just know a good deal when I see it, I'll just make a judgement call. And I'm never going to find one if I live off this. Because it's a house, there's all sorts of other parts of your brain that get involved, right? Mm. I mean, you guys do this for a living, so you're really good at seeing property as investments. But most people don't see property just as an investment, which means that they're, they're starting to use other parts of their brain, right? They're dipping into the emotional part of their brain, the belonging part of their brain, yes. all of that stuff. And that stuff's really, really hard to overcome. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to throw my wife under the bus, but she was looking at a property that she just absolutely loved. And it was a great property, but it was single glazed. It, ah, had, yeah. it had, this is Christchurch, right? Single glazed glass, log burners. I'm thinking. Oh, just a world of pain. World of pain in winter, right? Just a world of pain in winter, no matter how beautiful it looked. It's now the counsellor's counselling session. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's come over to money line number five. Yeah. Well, money line number five is that all of us, unfortunately, are lazy. We prefer the easy road and even cognitive effort. Like there's a thing that's actually called ego depletion, which is that, you know, once you've made a couple of hard decisions, every subsequent decision you make gets harder and uses up more and more of your cognitive energy. And you've got to start thinking about your brain the way you think about your body, right? Brain needs to be well-fueled. It needs to be well-rested, particularly if you're making an important decision, like a property investment decision. These are not things you should be winging on your gut. Yes, and often we talk about people having to have the mental bandwidth before they go into these kind of things for due diligence. And, you know, there's some investors I'm working with at the moment and there's just so much going on in their life with just changes with kids' schools and stuff like that, that just taking the time to focus on the decisions they need to make to invest wisely has been a real challenge for them. And so hence why they came and yeah. talked to us about just can you take away that, that pressure right. so that we don't have to use any more mental bandwidth. So you, you don't counsel those guys to carve out a bit of time in their week? We do a little bit, right. but then at the moment they're going to open homes and stuff like that. So that's not best use of their time because, again, exactly what you said before, they're applying, even though they're saying, hey, look, we're investors, we know what we're doing, they are applying personal decisions to their investment decisions, such as we might live in this area someday for kids' schools. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, as we know right now in the market, everybody's got that fear of missing out, right? There's Absolutely. Huge pressure. Absolutely. Make a decision now, otherwise you won't be able to wind that's up. That's right. Yep. But also just on that, I think that people, rather than going and creating that checklist and externalising their thinking like you were just suggesting, there's a real tendency to jump straight into the property press or yes, trade me yes, or yes. realestate.co.nz yep. and let's just start looking for properties yep. Yep. rather than forming what that criteria is first. They want to dive right in because that's the easy road rather than the road that's actually going to lead to more success. And then, of course, they'll just go and see properties and the decision will be made on do we like it? or not. But, but hold on, you know, one of the things that, that one of my old professors used to 
tell me is everything looks easy from the distance of ignorance. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Everything's easy, yeah, until you have to do it. Yeah, right. Money line number six, what's the final one? Well, the final one is optimism bias, right? And this is what you see in property bubbles throughout the world, is that people just believe in general that things will work out well, it's called overconfidence bias, it's called optimism bias. It's actually probably what gets us all through the day as human beings. But actually, it, it, it actually <laughs> gets me through the day. <laughs> yeah, the belief that things will turn out well, right? Even just think about everyday events. You know, you think about other people getting sick, you don't think you'll ever get sick. Yes. You know, think about Christchurch, you don't think an earthquake will ever happen. Yes. So we've, optimism bias is written into our genes. It's probably what got us out of the caves to start with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the problem is in investing, optimism bias can lead you into a world of pain. And so the interesting thing is, from a from a mental sanity standpoint, that's such a positive thing to have a positive outlook and, yeah. and not to be worried about the worst case scenario of everything. But from an investment standpoint, it can be relatively dangerous at times, right? Yeah. So in psychology, there's a thing called a pre-mortem, which is a really cool technique. You can use it in projects, you can use it for investments, which is just right at the outset, say, if this went wrong, what happened? What do we do about it? Right? So what's our exit strategy? You know, and what can we learn from what went wrong? And that's before you drop the money down. It's before yes. the project starts. So you know where the weakness is and you can go about addressing it. And how do you stop yourself from then just becoming so riddled with fear that you just don't do anything? Well, I don't think that's the problem. Right. So I actually think the problem is the other way around. Like okay. I think, I think holding people back is a lot harder than getting them started. Oh, maybe at the moment, but yeah, uh, not right. always. Yeah. So those are the six key money lines to be aware of as you're going about investing in property. Make sure that you're not blindly following the herd. Make sure that you're evaluating your losses more or less equal to your winnings, if that fits your risk tolerance. People do tend to overvalue what they already have rather than valuing it independently. Of course, number four was really test what could you be wrong about, what might make you wrong, and what circumstances would you be wrong. We do tend to prefer the easy route, and of course we believe things will turn out well regardless. So make sure that you're walking through these things. And actually it's quite nice to hear this because it kind of validates the whole data-based approach that we take to invest. Andrew. Great, let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you want to learn more about property with Andrew and I, come along to our next webinar. That's happening on Tuesday, the 14th of December, and we're going to go over our predictions and forecasts for what's going to happen in 2022 in property. If you want to come along to that, tap or swipe over the cover art. There's going to be a wee link in there, or sign up for that at opuspartners.co.nz slash webinar. Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time. <laughs>